0: Welcome to Climate Now, the podcast that explores and explains the ideas, technologies, and the solutions that we'll need to address the climate crisis and achieve a net zero future. I'm James Lawler, and if you like this episode, please leave us a review, share it with your friends, or tell us what you think at contact at climatenow.com. We love to hear from folks. Today, we're going to be talking to Rob Hansen who is co-founder and CEO of clean hydrogen company Monolith Materials. From its Nebraska-based plant, Monolith converts methane gas into hydrogen and another product called carbon black, which is an essential component of car tires, among other things. In this episode, Rob and I discuss Monolith's innovative carbon zero logistics and manufacturing techniques, which include using renewable biogas from Nebraska's farms and the world's largest plasma torch. We also talk about how companies like Monolith are leveraging new government subsidies to supercharge the hydrogen industry. But first, our news segment.
1: For this week in climate news, I'm Emma Crow-Willard, and I'm in for James Lawler today. I'm joined by Julio Friedman. Julio, you want to start us off on the first piece of news about the EU-UK carbon border adjustment mechanism discussions?
2: Absolutely, and always a pleasure to be here. There was a set of stories that looked at the EU border carbon adjustment or carbon border adjustment mechanism, sometimes called a CBAM. And the carbon border adjustment is basically a tariff on imported goods as a function of their carbon footprint. And the EU has decided that they're going to go after this big. And because the UK is no longer part of the EU, they have to actually negotiate with the UK around it, but it looks like they're getting closer to a deal. They're talking and they're working together. This is relevant for many reasons, not the least of which the U.S. is working on a CBAM as well, and it's being pushed forward by a number of people. It is a mechanism that could, if designed correctly, really lead to better trade that is cleaner. It could create strength among nations that are able to trade through that carbon border adjustment, it should incent companies who want to sell into the European market, or if we have a U.S. one, into the U.S. market, to really clean up their production. Um, If it's designed poorly, it can become a real problem. If it's designed poorly, it can become something that is challenged under the World Trade Organization and the International Monetary Fund. If it's designed poorly, you end up counting the wrong things.
1: Yeah, this could really impact how the U.S. thinks about their CBAM. We had a Podcast episode before the Inflation Reduction Act came out with several economists and uh, lawyer and folks working in the U.S. about like the C.B.A.M. proposed in the U.S. last year, uh, 2022, and it, it just came down to like it really doesn't make sense in the U.S. if there's not a carbon price. But I don't know if things are different with the I.R.A.
2: Right, it it is the case. That it is like a carbon price. It's an indirect carbon price. And if you don't have an internal carbon price to your nation, then that becomes a basis on which the WTO or the IMF may challenge it. Uh, It is a way to bring a price on carbon and push that into markets in places where it normally wouldn't stick.
1: Yeah, makes sense. In other news, the U.S. Treasury and the IRS have to write the rules for how the tax credits that are in the IRA will be administered, right? And we're coming up to that point where they're releasing notices of proposed rulemaking. And on the 31st of March, the U.S. Treasury released a notice of proposed rulemaking to clarify requirements for clean vehicle credits. To meet the $7,500 credit, a vehicle must undergo final assembly in North America. It must not exceed $55,000 in cost. That's for the sedan type vehicle, as opposed to the the bigger vehicles must not exceed $80,000. And so these new proposed rules kind of explain how manufacturers must meet sourcing requirements for minerals and battery components. What are you seeing there?
2: Right. So, first of all, great to see the guidance out. It will help people a lot. There is a challenge in the guidance around the Made in America provisions. The IRS has tried to put a ladder in so that you can start with 40% and then increase those numbers up over time. Senator Manchin. Uh, is nervous about this because he wants to see lithium made in the United States. Uh, And we do have lithium reserves, but we don't have lithium production and we don't have lithium refining. So he wants to try to cut China out of these supply chains. That is a reasonable thing to ask for. But if we get too bound up in those things, then we're not going to deploy. And the whole point is we want to deploy EVs.
1: In addition, in April, it's quite possible that the Treasury will be releasing a notice of proposed rulemaking around the hydrogen tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's 45V, and the tax credit offers up to $3 a kilogram for the cleanest method of producing hydrogen, cleanest methods, I should say. And and so just into context, today it costs around Five to six dollars per kilogram to produce green hydrogen via electrolysis, depending on who you ask, (laughs) and about one dollar to a dollar fifty per kilogram for gray hydrogen, which is made using methane or natural gas, and that can reduce CO2 emissions. And so this tax credit obviously is supporting uh, green hydrogen production, but there's a lot of complications and disagreements about how it should be administered. So. Julio, I'll pass it over to you to kind of explain what's going on there.
2: Sure. So 45V, which is this new tax credit for hydrogen, is determined as a function of how clean production is. And you must include upstream emissions, including the emissions from electricity or the fugitive emissions from natural gas. All of that goes into the calculation. The IRS is trying to figure out how exactly they should execute that calculation and what guidance they should give to people. And there's a sticking point around a couple of things. One of them is called additionality. The other is called hourly matching. Additionality means all the energy that comes in has to be new green electricity, whether that's nuclear or solar or wind or geothermal to be determined. But if you have zero carbon electricity going in, one of the questions is, is that additional, or are you stealing other clean electrons out of the grid? Um, in Europe, they were going to do that, and then they backtracked. The IRS is trying to figure out whether or not to include additionality in this. There's the other issue, though, which is about, do you do the electricity generation on an annual average, or a monthly average, or an hourly average? And for an hourly average, that means that you got to generate an hour of electricity and match it to an hour of hydrogen production. If you want to do that, most green hydrogen facilities need high capacity factors. They need to run a lot in order to get their money back for the capital stack. So that means that you would need to firm up solar with a lot of batteries and with a lot of wind. And that starts to look more expensive, even with the investment tax credits and production tax credits in the IRA. And it looks like that could increase the price by 50 to 100 percent. It's also the case that would get you a better climate outcome. If you did hourly matching, an additional generation, you would definitely get a better outcome, and it would be easier to hit that low target. So it's this push back and forth. It's the trade-off between actually getting things deployed and moved out into the field versus the additional costs versus the climate benefits. All these things are in trade-offs. If you just do it poorly and start pulling electricity off the grid— the actual footprint of hydrogen production could be very large.
1: Yeah, and that's related to our upcoming interview with Rob Hansen of Monolith that's producing hydrogen from methane, or renewable natural gas.
2: Yeah, but it's not blue hydrogen is the way most people think about it. It's something different. I look forward to hearing him describe it.
1: I don't know what you would call it. Is it blue? Is it green?
2: (laughs) Turquoise hydrogen, which is just dumb. (laughs) This is part of the hydrogen rainbow nonsense that I try to avoid constantly. You Blue know, and green
1: bits together. That makes sense. Yeah, to me. But
2: now there's like pink hydrogen, there's yellow <laughs> hydrogen, there's magenta hydrogen. Oh my goodness. These people are trying to pitch gold hydrogen. It's like it's utter nonsense. Question is, correctly within the IRA, what's the footprint? That's the only thing that matters.
0: Now to our interview segment Rob Hansen and co founder Peter Johnson launched Monolith Materials in 2012. Their mission was to use sustainable electricity to turn natural gas into industrial products, namely hydrogen fuel and carbon black, which is an ingredient in paint pigment, car tires, and hundreds or maybe thousands of other products. Monolith would eventually open a manufacturing facility in Nebraska, whose farms provide a ready source of what's called renewable methane. To turn this gas into marketable products, Monolith uses a process which is called methane pyrolysis, which involves the largest plasma torch ever constructed. If you have no idea what that is, you're not alone. We will get to it. Eventually, Monolith aims to use its hydrogen to manufacture carbon-neutral ammonia. In our conversation, Rob explained how all of this works and how the Inflation Reduction Act and other government action is paving the way for carbon-neutral industry. So what is Monolith? Could you tell us sort of how you got started and what the company is and does?
3: Yeah, so we're a clean hydrogen and materials company, and we have invented a new process. It's got a big fancy name called methane pyrolysis. But what it really is, is it's taking methane, and that can be either pipeline gas or renewable natural gas. And we use a lot of electricity in a very high temperature process to split the methane into its two key components, which are hydrogen and solid carbon. And the big advantage there is uh, because the carbon comes out as a solid, it never ends up in the atmosphere as CO2. And so you get clean hydrogen. And then we've gone a step further and we've really figured out how to tailor that solid carbon so that it's got a bunch of utility, uh, both economically and environmentally. And it's this product called Carbon Black.
0: So who are your customers of this Carbon Black material? Where do you sell this and what do you sell it for?
3: Yep. So Carbon Black is another kind of interesting hundred-year-old material it's pure carbon, and it's in solid form. It looks like like black flour. But if you zoom in on it with an electron microscope, it's actually this really interesting nanostructure. So it looks like a bunch of grapes where the individual grape is like 10 to 50 nanometers, and they're connected together. You actually control the size of the grape and how many are connected together, and that makes different grades. So it's this highly customized carbon nanoparticle. So 70% of carbon black goes into making the tires of the world. And a third of every tire on the planet, car, truck, whether it's EV or gas or diesel or hydrogen powered, a third of every tire is carbon black. Um, hmm. And that's really unchanged for just decade upon decade. Um, it also finds its way into other rubber products, so belts and hoses and things like that. And then the final thing, it's it's used to make things black. It's like the original black pigment. And so hmm. really anything that's black uh, or even anything that is tinted with something that is black. So basically every paint in the world has some carbon black in it. Um, <clears throat> the black plastic keys on your keyboard um, and you just see it everywhere. You touch it or something with it essentially every day. And it's just this ubiquitous uh, petrochem that's all over the place. Interesting.
0: Now, what's the difference between carbon black and
3: graphite? Yeah, good question. So, so graphite, um, if you kind of zoomed in on it with the electron microscope... It's in a sheet structure. So graphene is an individual sheet of carbon connected together, and graphite is a whole layer, you know, stack of those sheets. But if you put graphite, these, you know, think of like a stack of paper, as opposed to carbon black being a bunch of grapes, if you put the stack of paper and mix it into rubber, it wouldn't really create a reinforcing network, like the bunch of grapes that are highly branched and connect together and strengthen that rubber. What else is
0: is carbon black in in any other? Uh, you met, you've mentioned rubber. You've mentioned um, you know pigments. I, is it used in other building materials?
3: So, um, not really as a structural agent. Um, it's primarily when you find it in rubber and some plastics, where it will be kind of at that nano scale structurally. Um, where there's a lot of research going on is, um, I'd say, on the on the really big side of methane pyrolysis, where eventually, you know, companies are so successful that they fully displaced the 20 million tons of carbon black. And now they're looking for more permanent sinks for the carbon. And you could always just kind of bury it in the ground and sequester it. But you'd much rather, especially if you can tailor it to create utility, have it go into something. And so the big areas that research are going into are building materials like concrete, roads, right? Mm -hmm. When you think of like either concrete or asphalt roads they usually have a whole bunch of different things going into them and imagining roads is quite interesting if you think of the volume of tires that are out there versus the volume of roads mm. and you know a tire's 30% solid carbon and a much harder application right it's the thing that's moving and the thing that has the humans inside you could certainly imagine getting a material sink of this solid carbon into the roads of the world yeah um and there's been some really interesting research on particularly carbon black where you you put it into into roads and particularly asphalt and you can improve the heat resistance right that's a big issue in countries like india where as the world gets hotter the asphalt gets soft and it starts to wear more. And so there's some interesting, I'd say, longer-term research and development that's being done by us and by many, many others around, let's say, Gen 2 utilization of highly tailored uh, solid carbon. And the key things are you want to create some value and you want it to be sequestered long-term. Awesome. So
0: what I'd love to do is just drill into sort of all the the inputs, the mechanism, and then the outputs, just to sort of unpack it a little bit. If you could describe what actually happens it with in methane pyrolysis. So, so you have natural gas, it enters into some kind of chamber. And if you could just sort of paint a picture of how the technology actually works.
3: Yep. Great question. So all of the heat comes from a giant uh, electric plasma torch. Okay. And what is that? Yeah, so it's a way to convert electricity into high temperature, very, very high temperature heat in a working fluid at very high efficiency. So we have a a little larger than 16 megawatt plasma torch. It's the largest plasma torch that's ever been built. Uh, The previous world record holder was NASA, they had an eight megawatt torch. And so we more than doubled that. And it can convert electricity from the grid into very high temperature heat at uh, north of 95 percent efficiency and that's really important because it's really an electrification of these processes of making hydrogen and making solid carbon products that you need really high temperature heat which comes from electricity to be able to do that efficiently Um, and it's very complicated and probably one of the highest temperature reactors in the world Um, and then we introduce the feedstock and you have to control that very precisely because we don't just want to split it. We want to split it and have the carbon come out as this highly tailored carbon black nanoparticle that can then go into a life safety product like, like a tire. Right. And right. tires are demanding application. I mean, when you ask people what's the most important safety feature on your car, most people say their seatbelt, but like, of course it's your tires. It's the only thing that connects yeah, you. And so, so that's, that's kind of some of the magic or secret sauce of monolith and, you know, There's been maybe 10 new methane pyrolysis startups in the past couple of years, and that's super exciting for us because it's gonna take a whole ecosystem. But the really hard Mm -hmm. part is not splitting methane. The really hard part is splitting it and getting this high value product out that can be tailored. Fascinating. Got it. So in the production of heat,
0: I suppose you had a couple of different options there. You could use this plasma torch, um, which actually I've never heard of that before. So you learn something new every day, fascinating. So you could use that or you could burn something, presumably, right? And maybe you could burn hydrogen or you could burn some of the natural gas and capture the CO2. Like you, you probably had a variety of options and you probably ran some analysis to figure out that your plasma torch was the best of those options. Can you talk through what that sort of thinking was by which you arrived at the solution you arrived at?
3: Yeah. So if you look at these two products, hydrogen and carbon black, both are made in huge quantities today. Literally, in the case of hydrogen, like 100 million tons per year. And in carbon black, kind of 20 million tons per year. And they're all made by burning something. So in the case of hydrogen, it's a process called steam methane reforming, where you're burning a bunch of natural gas. In the case of carbon black, it's called the furnace process, where you're burning a bunch of oil. And so that's how you generate the heat and the ability to split and and, and get your end products. Um, But when you burn something, you make CO2, right? Mm -hmm. And so... If you want to make a clean process, you can either burn something that doesn't emit CO2, which is hydrogen, but burning hydrogen is not the best end use of hydrogen, right? It's this really powerful reductant. You can build all types of chemistry with it, like ammonia, and so it'd be very expensive. Or you can use electricity. And the cool thing with electricity is now you give yourself a whole range of different ways that you can be decarbonized, right? So your electricity can come from renewables, it can come from nuclear, it can come from hydro where you've now decoupled the production and emission of CO2 into the atmosphere with the source of your primary energy that's driving the process. So really early on, I mean, this is electrification, right? This is electrification of these currently combustion processes. And so it was a a, a pretty easy answer for us. Now, the last part of this is some of the nitty gritty of the chemistry, particularly of making this carbon black product, which is this nano form of carbon that's just super... Bespoke and there's lots of different grades, and it's really complicated. Um, you can only do that at really high temperatures. And so not just any old electrification works, right? You couldn't use the element from your electric stove or uh, equivalent to generate the heat. We had to use a plasma if you wanted the efficiency and the temperature range that can effectively drive this process.
0: Yeah. So so you've got this plasma torch and you have the natural gas as inputs. Now, are you currently operational? You're selling hydrogen and you're selling carbon black
3: today. Yeah, so we're operational. Uh, we've taken a number of steps. We had a pilot plant uh, in France, a demonstration plant in California. And now this is our first full-scale commercial unit. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's one unit. Eventually, we'll expand this plant to have an additional 12 units. Um, but we have the first unit online, and it's producing carbon black and hydrogen. Uh, the carbon black, it looks like black flour, you then pelletize it into small BB-sized pellets, and it's it's really quite easy to ship. It's shelf-stable, it's non-toxic, it's non-combustible, and so you can put it into rail cars. We're on the Union Pacific Rail Line. You can put it into hopper trucks, or you can put it into what are called super sacks, which are like one-ton bags that would sit on a pallet, and then you ship those all around the country. Amazing. And on the other side, you've got hydrogen, which is perhaps the hardest thing in the world to transport, right? It's number one on the periodic table. If you want it to be a liquid, you gotta go down to 20 Kelvin and then it's 73 kilograms per cubic meter. So like 7% the density of water. Um, And so our plan there is uh, you wanna convert it into something as quickly as possible that either has value or is more transportable. And so the region of the country we're in is, is the Corn Belt. And so we're converting it into ammonia, which is NH3 at site. We're not doing that today. Uh, we're going to do that with our expansion project because the amount of hydrogen we produce from one unit doesn't really make sense. It would be the smallest ammonia plant in the world, probably. And so, <laughs> we we have an expansion to this plant.
0: Yay! <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Right. Not the most capitally efficient thing to do. So, so unfortunately, for for the next few years, we're actually just flaring the hydrogen, which doesn't have a pollution footprint, but it's a it's it's sad because. You know, it is a lot of hydrogen still to just be flaring, uh, but the reason is that we're going to be building these twelve additional units at this site in a phase two, and then we're going to take all the hydrogen from the expansion and the existing one, and we're building an on-site ammonia synthesis plant. And now it'll be a very standard-sized ammonia plant that will, you know, be able to supply regionally uh, for fertilizer primarily.
0: And where do you get the nitrogen for
3: that? Yeah, so nitrogen just from the air, um, and and that's. You know, it'll be an air set plant. We're working with one of the industrial gas companies. They'll they'll do that and just over the fence us nitrogen. Okay. And the hard the hard part of making ammonia, both from a cost perspective and from an emissions perspective, is the hydrogen. That's the vast majority of the cost of making ammonia is making the hydrogen, and essentially all the emissions when you have ammonia comes from the production of hydrogen to make that ammonia.
0: Okay. Interesting. I guess that's so that that's probably the most lucrative thing you could do with the hydrogen. Um it, it wouldn't be would it be useful to just use it as another source of your heat? You could you could burn it to supplement your what you're taking off the grid or is that not efficient?
3: Um yeah, I think it's I think making a chemical out of hydrogen, especially one like ammonia where there's a big market demand and the conventional way to make ammonia has a big footprint. Mm-hmm. So the production of ammonia globally accounts for 1% of global CO2 emissions.
0: What do you see the role of hydrogen being, you know, beyond ammonia production? what What is hydrogen's role in the energy transition, do you think?
3: Yeah. So two things. One, you know, the 100 million tons of hydrogen we make today uh, emits over a gigaton of CO2. So that's like 2% of global CO2. So number one, we just got to clean that up, right? That's, that's worth doing. And that's a big piece mm-hmm. of... A big piece of the pie.
0: On that, do you happen to have off the top of your head kind of a a pie chart of the u- current uses of hydrogen globally? And how does that break down today?
3: So it's, it's probably 40, hydrogen's currently 45% utilized to make ammonia, mm-hmm. uh, kind of mother of all fertilizers. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's used to refine uh, liquid transportation fuels. Mostly that's fossil fuel, hydro treating crude to make gasoline and low sulfur diesel and other liquid fuels but if you make renewable fuels like renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel that requires even more hydrogen per unit because you're not just taking things like sulfur you're also taking a lot of oxygen out of the out of the chains so that's probably 35% today oh. and then there's a long tail so 80% is ammonia and refining and then 20% is all types of different things from hydrogenating foods to glass to, you know, hydrogen cooling of generators and, and all of those. Interesting.
0: So one other question I had related to the business is why you've located in Nebraska. So you mentioned that it's advantageous to be near rail so that you can ship this carbon black, but could you, could you just tell us why have you picked that area to site the facility?
3: Yeah. So number one input for us is electricity. And Nebraska is actually the only state in the country that has 100% public power. And so it's a really interesting model where, because of that, uh, you don't have a profit motive in the electricity sector. And so, over many, many decades of kind of good management, uh, they have very good rates and some of the best electricity rates in the country. Now, the second part is we want our electricity to be clean. And so you know Nebraska's mix is pretty good right now. Uh, they've got uh, still a large nuclear plant, and they have some wind and hydro assets. But uh, there's a ton of wind resource, and so when you look forward of who's going to be able to, you know, truly deeply decarbonize their grid, we really liked the Nebraska potential. Crazy. And so, yeah. So there's this, you know, put the production where the demand is, and then also clean it up. Another reason
0: Monolith picked Nebraska for the first of its plants is because of the availability of what's called renewable methane. Nebraska has a lot of agriculture, and the plants and animals on its farms produce a lot of methane. Methane from these sources is called biogas, and it can be refined into renewable natural gas, also known as RNG. RNG could be carbon negative depending on where it comes from and how it's made. Thus, by setting up shop in Nebraska, Monolith has a ready source of potentially carbon-negative methane to make its hydrogen and carbon black.
3: So, when you think of you know fossil gas, right? That's carbon that's been pulled out of the atmosphere, you know, hundred million years ago, and you pull that from the ground, you burn it, you put the CO two into the atmosphere. That's kind of this massive transfer of carbon into the ancient from the ancient atmosphere into today's. If you do RNG or you know biogas. The carbon dioxide gets taken out of the atmosphere by a growing plant through photosynthesis and it's in its biomass. And then that biomass you know, falls on the ground and aerobically digests back into CO2 and that's the carbon cycle. Or you capture it, you anaerobically digest it into methane and then you burn the methane, the CO2 goes back into the atmosphere. And that's kind of the simple view of, of RNG and why it's perhaps somewhat sustainable. Now that's if you burn it. If instead of burning the RNG at the end, you pyrolyze it, then that solid carbon which used to be carbon dioxide in the atmosphere very recently is now a solid carbon that ends up getting sequestered. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere through the only thing that touches the atmosphere at scale that humans have ever had any control over, which is agriculture. And you're pulling that out in potentially very large quantities into a solid sequestered product. And so we can actually measure or anyone can measure the carbon 14 isotope, which is you know, uh, can tell you if it was recently biogenic of our solid carbon. And you can kind of prove that not just from a mathematics, but from an actual physical perspective, CO2 has been drawn out of the atmosphere in this process. And of course, you're also making hydrogen alongside. So when you do the big life cycle analysis, depending on what percentage of fossil versus renewable, you can be slightly positive in the case of all fossil, because you have to count the upstream emissions from the natural gas sector, of course, or strongly negative if you were using you know, high percentages of RNG.
0: Right. Um, And so to what degree has sort of participated, has participating in the voluntary carbon offset market then factored into your, your calculations about your business model, given that, you know, it sounds like you guys have a, you guys have sort of this wonderful quality in your process, which, which is like, we can actually prove, right? How much we are taking out, which, you know, we've, we've covered on this podcast in a number of different cases, how, that's really kind of the holy grail in terms of selling carbon offsets is, is very few sellers can actually show on a scale, if you will, how much carbon their particular operation has pulled out of the atmosphere. And it sounds like you guys, there's a path to doing that with your operation.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, our fundamental philosophy from the beginning of starting this company is what we really need to do, right? What we need to do as a country, as a global community is we need to continue to make the high value energy and energy products that drive our society forward. But we need to do it in a way that doesn't emit CO2, like full stop. It's not about continuing to emit CO2, but playing a shell game on some other area. So that's kind of how we think about it is, is number one, like, the world needs hydrogen and hydrogen drive products like ammonia it needs carbon black because it's critical to mobility and if you're going to bet on something persisting it's probably the wheel mm-hmm. um, that's a pretty safe bet but we got to do it without emitting co2 right and so we kind of started from there and we said like we're not worried about doing offsets we want to get to true zero including the electricity side on the upstream and the natural gas side on the upstream and that's where you want to get that system tight if it's fossil then you want to start blending in RNG over time. Now, if we find ourselves in a position where, you know, we're strongly negative and we have, you know, a potential to monetize the carbon negative nature of that, I think our customers are going to want it first. Yeah. And so, if you think of, you know, the big tire producers, they all have uh, big commitments to getting both carbon neutral and 100% sustainable products. And there's going to be parts that are really hard. And so if we could bring not just neutral, but negative, that probably is going to be quite valuable to them, in which case I would first and foremost want to sell to them and help them solve their problems, right? And that rolls up into the auto OEMs. And if you think about EVs making, you know, more penetration, they're really going to care about the embodied carbon and and tires are part of that and, and they really matter. Totally. That's really, really
0: interesting. So... Pivoting a little bit in, a, in the conversation, I'd love to talk to you about the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of your, I, as I understand it, your kind of behind the scenes conversations with senators about sort of the IRA and getting that across the finish line.
3: Yeah. So, you know, when we started the company, it was really important that we kind of had standalone economics and, and we do, right? It's, it's, uh, we make these two products, carbon black and hydrogen, and uh, we don't need a premium to be economically viable, and so for the first like nine years of the company life, mm-hmm. company's life, I mean, we spent next to no time doing anything on the policy side. We just were like heads down technology market, build the company. Well, then last year, you know, all of a sudden some momentum started building for this big climate bill, first Build Back Better, and then the IRA, and so it wasn't one that we were pushing for, but. When it came up, and you know, hydrogen had really become an important part of the energy transition and one of the tools that we have, particularly in this country, um, we engaged from the perspective of if there's going to be a hydrogen tax credit, we want to make sure that it gets done, you know, to what we think is the right way. And so that's that's the context that we started engaging. I mean, I think our lobbying budget is probably one one thousandth or one ten thousandth of. <laughs> Big existing companies in the space, so you know it. It was you know we were a few people, um, but it was really cool to get to engage in that process. Just getting to participate in how an actual law got, you know, passed was really cool. Of even little old Monolith got to have a seat at many of the tables, and it was it was really fascinating and fun.
0: Interesting. So tell us what the um, just you know for those who aren't tracking as keenly you know what exactly is the hydrogen subsidy and how is monolith positioned to take advantage of that
3: yep so it, it all started there was a kind of standalone bill for a clean hydrogen production tax credit so a PTC much like the wind PTC and, and that be, kind of became the the blueprint for what ultimately ended up being included and passed in the IRA and so you know it took various shapes over time but where kind of where we had our influence or what what we really cared about was a couple of things one we said we want this to be technology agnostic right the law shouldn't be specifically picking types of technologies so that was number 1 number 2 it's a clean hydrogen tax credit and so we said define clean based on the full life cycle carbon intensity of the hydrogen production and yes mm-hmm. that's hard math and there's going to we're in it right now there's going to be all types of rules that need to be made it's going to have to be fought about but like that's kind of the challenge
0: <laughs> and in your case and and just to just to kind of bring that home like the full life cycle carbon intensity of the process in your case and correct me if i'm wrong about this but would include the grid the carbon intensity of the grid because that's producing your electricity for your plasma torch it includes the upstream emissions associated with natural gas production and delivery it includes i guess any leaks in the, I hope there are none, but maybe there are some leaks in the process. Um, anything else that would be relevant there?
3: No, those are the big ones. And and, okay. and the law did make it clear. They they said well to gate. So it's all the way back to the well, but then it ends once you're at the gate. So you, you're not tracking necessarily the full life cycle downstream because it's it's about cleaning up hydrogen, right? And so it's saying, look, we need hydrogen in the end products, but we're not going to go all the way you know through the end of life so it's well to gate and gate means the point at which
0: you are passing the hydrogen to your customer at your gate like you've produced the hydrogen and now here you go up to that point that's right. okay
3: and then and then you know you hit all the big ones you know electricity upstream um natural gas upstream any on-site emissions and and the ones that are you know not perfectly clear and it's going through the rulemaking process right now is Okay, how much, if any, of you know the steel you use to build your plant? Do you need to go upstream on the steel? Uh, right. What about your corporate overhead? Do you need to do the travel of your executives? Right. And and that kind of stuff. I, I think the answer is probably going to be no on those because eventually you run into um, just the actual practicality of it, and you're starting to talk about the last few percent. That, uh, but the big ones are like you said, upstream electricity, upstream natural gas.
0: And to recap, it's not a carbon negative process, but the idea is that over time, as the grid, you know, greens and as you start to use more um, renewable natural gas, it it could be or will or should be.
3: Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and and so 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 that's kind of what we cared about was um, technology agnostic and base the credit, and it's a sliding credit on what the carbon intensity of the hydrogen production is based on this life cycle analysis. And so it ended up being quite a steep curve. So I'll give an example. The, the current way of making hydrogen is 10 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of hydrogen. To get the top credit, you've got to get below 0.45. So that would be greater than a 95% reduction. And then you get mm-hmm. then you get $3 a kilogram of tax credit. Okay, and what are you guys? And so we're below. We're below 0.45. 0.45. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, in that tax credit, if you're, say, one, so you're still 90% reduction, you're one kilogram of CO2 per kilogram of hydrogen, mm-hmm. then it's a $1 credit. So it really incentivizes you to go all the way. The last mile. Yep. And and I mean, I think conceptually it's kind of like zero, but then they said, look, practically zero. You know, let's incentivize ninety-five percent plus reduction with the top yeah. tier, and, and that's where that's where we get to. And then, like I said, we can get to a hundred or more with the percentage of RNG that we use. Right, that makes sense. Really neat.
0: So it sounds like the inflation reduction act really kind of supercharged your business model, right? Providing three dollars per kilogram of clean hydrogen produced, and you're producing
3: how much clean hydrogen? So our our you know big plant that we're working on is going to be roughly. 50 to 60 million kilograms per year. Wow.
0: So hundreds of millions of dollars of additional kind of charge in favor of the the business which is amazing. And on top of what should already kind of work from a financial standpoint. So that's unbelievable. One one question I have related to some of the other incentives that we've we've looked at we've talked about on this podcast is the low carbon fuel standard, LCFS, and I wondered just thinking about you know, end markets, given that 35% of hydrogens used to produce fuels, there might be good reason for refiners to purchase your hydrogen so that they could claim that. Is that something that you're doing currently or thinking about?
3: Yeah. So I think like I was saying, you know, Nebraska is our first project and that's, you know, hydrogen to ammonia, um, and that whole yeah. story, but we have a whole bunch of additional projects that we're working on and, you know, some that are very interesting, you know. There's there's some renewable diesel projects that I find fascinating. I mean, even in in where we are, um, ethanol, right? Thirty percent of Nebraska's corn goes to ethanol. I think like ninety plus percent of that ethanol goes to California, yeah, because of the LCFS, yeah. And a decent number. It's not as high as eight or nine points, but it's you know several points of the CI of ethanol is associated with the emissions that were used to produce the fertilizer that was used to grow the corn and so that's a more circuitous path right but you know (laughs) the point is like yeah it's there and it's it's there in a real way
0: yeah that's very cool well rob thank you so much for your time i think we've covered it and this is such an exciting business monolith materials and really pleased to have you thank you for making time for us today
3: yeah my pleasure thanks for having me that's
0: it for this episode of the podcast. To learn more about green hydrogen and sustainable industry, you can check out our other podcast conversations at climatenow.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy applied science and research facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org.